Hey there, I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. I want to thank every one of you for joining this new community that has started with some really good interviews. Roberto Martinez, Tyler Adams, Marcelo Balboa, Landon Donovan, Derek Ray, and Julie Foudy. This podcast is a joint effort with the Total Soccer Show, and it comes out twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. Today's interview guest is Tony Sane, the former U.S. World Cup star, who discusses the work of his foundation in his native Twin Cities, which has 50 full-time employees and serves thousands in the area's minority communities. Sane shares his thoughts on racism and police brutality and what can be done to cause real change in communities around the country. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. I can't tell you how much that helps early on. Before we get to Tony Sane, I'll occasionally do some opinion segments on the show, and this one goes like this. On Wednesday, I spoke to a veteran MLS player to get his thoughts on the agreement reached by the Players Union and the owners on Wednesday that ratified a new collective bargaining agreement and allowed for a tournament to take place in Orlando starting in July involving all the league's teams. The player asked for anonymity because he wanted the player's true thoughts to get out publicly. And what he said was this, the relationship between the MLS owners and players will be set back years by the league threatening a lockout if the players didn't agree to their proposal. A lockout would have shut down all the players' income and even their families' health care in the middle of a pandemic. Think about that. The player noted that his side never once threatened to go on strike, never threatened not to go to Orlando for this tournament, and he said the league's tactics squandered the goodwill that had been there earlier in the year when the two sides had reached an agreement on a new CBA before the virus. The player added that multiple best 11 quality players are still considering whether they will not attend the tournament in Orlando out of fears for their safety or the excessive duration of the trip, even if it means that they won't be paid during that time. It's worth noting that the NWSL preached a different message to its players about the league-wide tournament taking place in Utah soon. The NWSL players can decide whether or not they play in that tournament, but they will all be paid whether or not they go to Utah. The message sent by MLS is starkly different. Threatening to lock the players out during a pandemic will not be forgotten. Now here's my interview with Tony Sane. Our guest now is Tony Sane. He was a standout on the U.S. team that reached the World Cup 2002 quarterfinals. He had a 16-year pro career in Germany and the United States. He's a native of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And in 2003, he started the Sané Foundation to advance diversity, equity, and community well-being for Minnesota's youth. The Sané Foundation has 50 full-time employees, an annual budget of more than $3 million, and was one of three winners of the 2018 Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Sports Awards. Tony, thank you so much for joining me during a time of great upheaval for the country and for the people of Minneapolis and St. Paul. For having me. It's been a challenging time, but uh, glad to add some insight, share our stories, and just reconnect with, you know, old friendly faces. Yeah, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, as our listeners no doubt know, George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis a week ago. Protests against police brutality toward black Americans have been happening around the country. 
First off, just how are you and how have you personally experienced the last week in the Twin Cities? You know, I think I'm, I'm okay. And I, I was saying before, you know, when you're in this work, it's, it's like you're a soldier. So you're never, you're never good or bad, but you're at home and there's something to do. There's a lot of different feelings and emotions. But when you're doing this work, it's, it's hard, you know, and I, we probably need to take more time to reflect and grieve and stuff. But it's hard because there's just so much to do. Yeah. What are you seeing in the city? Have you had a chance to, to go out into the city much over the past week? Yeah, you know, we, I mean, I go to work every day and then um, we also, you know, have looked at different areas and, you know, the mall behind um, my community center that we run, you know, I took the drone over on the day there, there, and, you know, it was tough to get to and from because all the freeways were blocked off and closed. But, you know, I, I did take the drone a block away and, and videotaped that as it was happening. Um, but, you know, a lot of destruction, um, a lot of pain, a lot of peace. And, you know, a lot of people um, saying that they want to help. And I can talk about that a little later or a little more, but, um, but that's, that's really what I'm, what I'm seeing right now. So we're speaking on Tuesday evening. What do you and the people you know in St. Paul and Minneapolis, what do you want to see happen now? Well, I, you know, I think, you know, there's been some good steps and people are, people are being accountable. Um, people are taking blame, um, but I don't think that's enough. I think we want to, we want to see a true, true investment in change. Um, you know, I was on a march today and it like brought me back in time. Like I was watching movies and I was like, this is how they felt. And, um, you know, I'm still, still protected a lot compared to, um, you know, in the sixties, but you know, there's so much sacrifice and investment that goes into it. And, you know, we, we want to see change, right? And, you know, we work with young people of color and, um, you know, the morals and the, the principle that this country is supposedly built on. And we want, we want to hold ourselves as individuals and the nation to the highest standard um, that we set forth. You know, we, we're, we want to basically back, back to back, talk to talk. We need to walk to walk. And so, you know, one thing is we see everybody coming out of the woodwork saying, we want to help. What can we do? Um, and, you know, the real answer is, you know, is that rhetorical? You know, are people serious? Or are they, you know, is it Minnesota nice? Right? Because I think, you know, everybody wants to help. Nobody likes the problem. Everybody realizes we have the problem. But are we really, are we willing to do what it takes to change the problem? And that means, you know, an overall and a lot of systems. So, yeah, so what do you, when people ask, what can we do, what do you tell them? Well, I, I say, you know, one, you know, there's a lot of organizations that do this professionally. They're struggling to really get a lot of work done because they don't have resources. So donate on a regular basis to organizations. You know, um, you know, in Minnesota, everyone went out and bought diapers and food and took it to where everything burnt down. There's a lot of food serving organizations that probably buy food um, 20 cents on the dollar, right? Um, that, that struggle. So I think connecting with the right people um, would help. Um, I think spending, you know, two to four hours a month on a regular basis, volunteering, giving back, developing relationships, and then also work on yourself, you know, put yourself in an uncomfortable spot, see what you can do better. Um, and maybe take a class, you know, you know, figure out what your own trauma was and how that's being passed on. Um, 
and you know invest in if you're a business owner and invest in some you know anti-racism or cultural sensitivity training you know try to understand and not just african-americans and you know latinos and asians and you know everybody has a different story and i think understanding it is key so when people ask me i said you know these are all things that you can do but like don't do it for 30 days and then you know you did in the in the in the I don't even, in the pandemic, you know, George Floyd crisis in, in 2020, you know, you know, what you should say is that's the day that you changed your life, right? That's the day you started to, to commit to change and it's not becoming lip service or something that's trendy to do. So how much of, of what's been happening in your city is in the parts that your foundation works with on a regular basis? Well, it's in the city. I mean, I mean, it's it's a big two cities, but and we work in in in, in the whole city. So, um, you know, we run over eighty five soccer camps, and you know, we're in seventeen schools. So, you know, all the neighborhoods that we work in have been affected um, in some way or another. Um, whether or not it's been looting, whether or not our kids live there, whether or not the schools, um, or whether or not you know it's been peaceful peaceful um, marches like today. What is the best way to describe what your foundation does and how many people it serves? You know, we are a community-serving foundation that um, really, you know, when we won the Robert Wood Johnson Award, it, it kind of helped us define ourselves. We make youth communities healthier, a better place to live. and But we have a fundamental on building healthy relationships. So when I retired, it was, you know, if I'm going to build relationships, it's where kids are at. So we build relationships in schools. So we have academic interventions and we, we teach and get people their master's degree to become teachers. Again, in the future, we hope this future generation of teachers is more relational, um, is, is an expert in social emotional learning um, and comes with a very empathetic and equity lens. Um, and that's gonna make institutional change. And at the same time, when we're doing that, we're supporting young brown and black kids in the school system. Um, in the summertime, we run free sports camps for over 7,000 kids, um, mostly soccer. Um, we hire high school kids. It's a workforce development program as well. Just giving kids an opportunity at the grassroots level to enjoy the game and to meet people from other cultures. Uh, lastly, we, we run the Conway Community Center, and that's just whatever goes on in that neighborhood. We've got 26 languages spoken there, and we probably got about 17 soccer teams, um, but we got basketball teams. We serve 40,000 meals. And it's kind of whatever the neighborhood wants. And then we do believe in partnerships. So we try to connect with other people internationally. And we do have a program that is a spinoff that we, we run and oversee. And it's FIFA funded in Haiti, um, where we, we bring Haitians to America and vice versa. But we also have a large program in one of the biggest slum in, in you know, this hemisphere. And, you know, this really true, it, it, it comes back home because, um, and in my statement that I'm putting out, I, I say this, um, you know, we get sent, I get sent by the government to go and teach soccer and sometimes to train police officers. So in Haiti, in the most violent neighborhoods, right, I go down and teach them that um, relationship-based leadership is better than fear-based. And there's things that you can do to connect with the community. And on day one, I said, what do you think about these kids and what's better? Well, relationship is better, but it would never work here. Our kids are too hardened. They're all evil. They're steel. You can't trust them. You know, we run clinics. We put them together for four days. By the last day, the police officers are volunteering ongoing. I said, what do you think of these kids? Well, they're so smart. 
they're our future. You know, they have the best smiles in the world. So we know there are places that are much more dangerous with much less resources that, that it's worked. But for some reason, we think that the problem doesn't exist here. Um, and so I don't do a lot of that kind of work here. I do it mostly internationally. Um, but, you know, th that's another thing is as, as Americans, you know, I think we have to learn to become ac accountable um, for what we, what we say and do. How many times have you been to Haiti now? Oh, I've been to Haiti too many to count. I stopped counting after 25. <laughs> wow. I assume that you have, I mean, this has been in the news down in Haiti lately. I assume that you have young women who are part of some of the stuff that you do down in Haiti. And there have been, there's an investigation right now into the Haitian Soccer Federation president for sexually abusing young women, soccer players. How tough is it for young women in Haiti from what you've seen? It's extremely tough. Um, early marriage. Um, you know, we, in our program, we, you know, in, in eight years, we've had only one of our, of our players um, get pregnant, um, um, you know, before the age of 18, which is pretty remarkable down there. Um, we've actually had some exchanges with the national team and, you know, we brought their women under 16 national team to America to do cross training as well. So um, those girls live in an academy, you know, on site there. So, you know, you, you go out and, and you wonder, and, and part of what we were doing when they were here was you know, a lot of women's empowerment, you know, to say no, to speak up. I mean, they're remarkable talents as, as a lot of the women are that we work with. But in Haiti, you know, you have a lot of, of old stuff um, that we're dealing with here, you know, uh, that may be based on color that they're dealing there based on gender. Um, but we do add it to, to a lot of our trainings and, we partner with an organization called uh, Coach Across Continents that, that has a lot of incredible um, self-directed learning. And, you know, the first exercise we usually do is, you know, ask for choice. So <clears throat> if you have a choice, you have a voice. So, you know, we, we get the girls screaming and, and saying what they like and what they want and smiling um, so that they know that, you know, they have some, they have power and they need to dictate where they're coming from. It's a very tough place to be um, for young women um, and what their expectations and the amount of, of rape and um, sex trafficking and um, lack of opportunities, especially um, for what I would call in Haiti um, darker people and that live in the slums. Your foundation is 80% finished with a capital campaign to build a, it's a $10 million project I was reading to build a dome and turf fields. What can you tell me about it? Well, you know, I, we, the area that I grew up in um, is the east side of St. Paul is kind of forgotten. And, and um, you know, it, they started to close community centers there. And we know when a community closes, um, crime goes up and everything in the area goes down. So we, you know, asked the, the city if we could take over this community center, they were, they were closing. That was only open. 20 hours a week maybe, and very little participation. Um, once we took it over, we started to engage with the community and it became lively. And then we just realized that, you know, these kids need a first class facility and the city's not gonna close down a brand new building. So this was something that was not brand new. Um, so we started to decide to raise money to fix it. And, and we got some funds during the Super Bowl and redid our gym and cafeteria um, because we serve food and that was a big piece of it. And now we're continuing to put lights and, and turf fields. And, 
you know, we're going to make it the safest field in Minnesota as well. So we are, you know, everyone said, you know, you don't need hardwood floors. You don't need a pad under your AstroTurf. Like they'll, they'll be happy just to have anything. We know and we want to stand by having the safest environment as we define ourselves as a community health organization for young people on the east side of St. Paul. So, you know, we're not going to use rubber infill and I'm not going to say who's right or wrong, but I personally don't believe that it can be the healthiest thing in the world. Um, and we're going to put an extra pad on there to make it safer. We're going to have lights. We're going to have fencing. We're going to have new building, a computer lab. It's going to be where community members can come and grow and, and develop their own leadership. When you started your foundation in, back in 2003, did you imagine how big your foundation would get? I mean, 50 full-time employees is not a, not a small operation. No, and I, and I, don't, I don't think on those, um, those, um, on those levels. You know, and when, when I was 10, nobody asked me if I was going to become a professional soccer player. But I when I was 12, and um, seven out of eight pages were about soccer. And, and the only one that wasn't was me when I was upset at my mom because she didn't let me play soccer because I wasn't doing my homework. Um, so, you know, I, I, um, it's a great job for me because it's like in a soccer game, you know, you score two goals, you know, you miss two goals, you, you're riding back in the bus and you're thinking about that was an awesome, you won the game and all the stuff you did. And, and you wake up the next day and the coach reminds you that you missed two goals and there's five guys in practice trying to take your job. So in this line of work, you know, the kids come and hug you, you get thank yous, you see change, you see people grow up right before your own eyes. You go to bed thinking about people that you fed, relationships that you build, and then you wake up and you look at the world we live in and you said, it's not enough. I got to get going. It's just not, it's not enough. So it keeps you in the mindset of a professional working hard every day. Um, and I guess, you know, our goal is, is to do what we can. I mean, we want to be good at this and we want to, we want to win. And, and that means supporting more kids in a better way. Obviously, the coronavirus has been going on now for several months. What has your foundation been doing during the coronavirus? So we kind of pivoted right away. You know, we had to close our community center. Um, some of our staff worked in schools, but we redeployed them in emergency um, first responders for, for child care. So some of our staff that worked in schools, we ended up doing um, child care because we're good with kids. And you know, people that were working in the hospitals had nowhere to, to send their kids anymore because all the daycare closed. Um, so we did that. Um, we had some of our staff that did distance learning in the schools that were getting their teacher license. And the rest of our organization pretty much went into food insecurity. Um, so we, we quickly deployed our team and um, we have a pretty good reputation. So we got new partners and we learned the food business. Um, and so really five days a week somewhere in town, you know, we're, we're supporting um, anywhere from, you know, 150 to 400 families a day. And I just saw the figure the other day. And, you know, I want to say that it was, it was, it was a big number. Um, and I'll, I'll look it up, but I was even surprised in, in a short time period that, you know, we served that many kids and, you know, you knew it was, you felt good and bad at the same time. Um, the first day we do produce, fresh produce, um, distributions. I went outside at 12 o'clock and our distribution starts at one and the line of cars was four blocks long one hour before we started. And I'll have to send you some drone footage. I did, I did get to work on my drone skills, by the way. So that's my fun in the day going outside and seeing what's up there. Cause 
we can't walk that far away. So I send the drone looking at, you know, how far the line really is. Um, uh, but it's, it's sad that there's that much need, but you feel really good that people um, view you as a solution and are coming to you for help. You know, I've seen the St. Paul mayor on CNN quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Doing the work that you've done in St. Paul, have you gotten to know the mayor pretty well? Yeah, we know um, <clears throat> the mayor pretty well. And just for the stats, I just looked at this. This last six weeks, four to six weeks, we've served 26,000 people. So it's wow. a lot. Um, so, yeah, we know the mayor, both mayors, um, and they actually both usually speak at our gala. Um, it's a true partnership. I mean, we took over a city building, and they help us get resources, and um, we're helping them do more for less, and, and they're helping, you know, tell us, you know, where the pain points are in the city as an organization, how we can better help them um, make sure the city is equitable. So I want to ask you about just your personal experience. Have you or or people you know ever been treated badly by the police in the Twin Cities? You're joking, right? I'm, I'm asking, guys. I'm, I don't know right. the answer. I think I know the answer, but... Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we've all had bad experiences everywhere, and I don't think, you know, you know what bothered me when I heard on TV the other day that said, you know, we don't have a problem and 99% of, of police officers are great. I do think the majority of police officers are great. Um, but I don't know that there's a black man or a Latino man or an Asian person in America that if you ask them if you think that they get treated equally or they're not scared of the police, will tell you no. Um, and so, you know, whether it's being respected, whether it's being followed, um, whether it's being, you know, rude, um, whether there's been an assumption, um, we've all been in those situations. Um, at the same time, you know, I've had great experiences with police officers. You know, I've had ones let me off from speeding. I've had some come and ask how I'm doing for my day. I have some that volunteer in my programs and teach baseball and soccer to the kids. So, you know, there are some bad apples, but I think it's more, the challenge more is in, and I think what's going on right now, everyone wants something to happen to the other three people that were there. Because the system is broken, it's very hard for a young police officer to come in, right? And they're saying, well, you know, you're either going to get on the bus or, you know what, straight bullets are flying. And the next time we go around town, you never know where you're going to be, right? Like, it's a very dangerous position. And I think we need to do a better job to change the culture um, so that people are not scared, people are not worried to stand up and stand out, um, you know, and I, there was one police officer on site that said, Hey, you know what, maybe we should turn them over, you know, maybe we're, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't enough. And, and the real question is why not? Right. Did they all think that either a, you know, nothing bad was happening. Um, did they think something bad was happening, but I'm scared to say, um, did they just not do their job? And even if they didn't do their job, it's why, you know, you know, um, and some of the other people like fear is fear is tough. And, you know, we do and we need to hold police to a higher standard. Um, but the reality is, is they're people, too. And, you know, they go through the same injustices within their organization as people outside do as well. So that's where we really need to change the mentality of the system um, as a whole. So that just like athletes, the majority of the athletes in this country want to go help somebody, nine out of 10 times. And they've all made it because people have helped them. But what gets put on TV, what gets posted is the negative news. 
And so I'm not giving people a pass, but what we need to is fix it so that the positives are what gets shown and that becomes the norm. And so now everybody, everybody is okay with calling out the people doing the bad things because everyone knows that that's the bad things. It's not the norm. You know, that's the exception. The problem right now is we don't know what the norm or the exception is because so many people, you know, are, are experiencing um, things in the community. Just from reading about over the years, I followed the Philando Castile death when he was killed by a police officer in the Twin Cities. That was a couple of years ago. I've been following this situation. If we realize that police treatment of black Americans is a national problem, that said, does the Minneapolis PD or the police in your city, do they have a particularly bad reputation on their own, like beyond sort of the national? I don't know what's national, you know. Um, I'm probably much more afraid to go in certain parts of the country regardless of the police um, than not. Um, and, you know, I, I know people and I was a pro athlete, so, and I have resources, so I sometimes can, can um, use my support system to support me more than, than others do here. Um, I'm very familiar with St. Paul, more familiar than Minneapolis have a personal relationship with the police chief in St. Paul, um, have police officers in St. Paul come to my community center and volunteer all the time and work with the kids. So for me personally, you know, if something did happen with the police, I, I would drop a name and say, I work with you guys, you're great, right? And, um, and, and more so, um, you know, Minneapolis is, is a little different animal. Um, I don't know what the, what the national reputation is, is there, um, but I definitely now know it's not what it should be. And I don't want to say that it's better or worse than any other area. I just know it's not good enough. By the way, sorry for the, uh, the sound effects from my end here in New York City. We're, uh, we're under curfew right now, which happened an hour and a half ago. We got helicopters flying outside where I live in, in midtown Manhattan. We're winding down with Tony San. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about uh, an important topic and, and share with us what you're doing with your foundation. I'm wondering... I'm going to interrupt you real quick for the record. Yeah. I've been arrested in New York City and, and spent the night in jail, so. What? I'm not going to get into it on air, but for minding my business, so. Wow. Leave it okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll go over that story offline sometime. So in terms of with what's happening right now, do you think with the protests, will this change any of the programming that you do with your foundation in the long term moving forward? I feel pretty good about the direction of our programming. What I hope is this awakes other people to know the importance of it. So that there's a larger sustainable investment in it. So we can do it more broadly across. And we already work with police officers. We already work with students. We always work with equity and we do anti-racism training with soccer clubs. Um, and clubs have us come in and, you know, 90% of the time when we ask a 12-year-old, you know, where did you hear that? They'll point to the parents in the back of the room. So we have to separate them. Um, we do anti-racism coaching for high school captains of all sports. And we really pride ourselves in, in creating an inclusive environment. So, you know, I think for the most part, our, our program will stay the same. Hopefully, we'll be able to invest in it to make it better and, and grow it. I'm wondering when we ask the question, is real change going to come out of this? 
deep down, do you believe real change will? I have to hope that it does, right? I mean, I, I can't give up. I know that I have to be a part of that. And I can't, I can't give up. So my hope is, and I have to believe it does and will, otherwise there's no purpose of me doing what I'm doing. So it has to. Um, and, you know, we won't stop or, or discontinue doing what we're doing until it does. So we really don't have a choice. What can people do who are listening to this podcast to support and donate to the Sane Foundation? Well, one, I think, um, you know, people locally, um, you can let people know that we're a resource um, and let people know about the ideas and the things that we do and how they're working. Um, you can donate on here on our page. You know, you can go to my Facebook page. There's a birthday fundraiser up for a couple more hours. Um, <laughs> you can, um, if you live locally, you can volunteer. You know, in the future, if you want, you can take a trip to Haiti with us um, and put some boots on the ground and you can sponsor a trial there. Um, you can, you know, when I bring youth from Haiti here, you can house kids in the summer. And really, you can support us through social media and, you know, letting the world know about the work we do because um, the more people that support you and know the work you do, the more resources you have and the more resources you have, the more people you can help. And just as a way of finishing up, any last messages you want to share with our listeners here, Tony? You know, I just want to thank um, the overwhelming support that, that I've seen from many people in this community and across the country to have the courage to stand up, to say something, to march, um, to call it out, because there are times when some people don't. So thank you. I would also say, you know, don't let your efforts go for naught. Be consistent and, you know, have today be that turning point. Right? What can you do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? I promise you, you know, as they say, when we do better, we do better. So think of the big picture. Um, you know, I used to, I used to not like, I shouldn't say this, but I used to have a grudge against Mexicans because the USA Mexico, not the people. So let me get that clear. USA Mexico, we had this big rivalry. So every time I saw a Mexican national team jersey, it was like, you know, next thing you know, 10 years later, I met a guy at a bar. We became friends. He's from Mexico. He named his kid after me. My brother married a, my brother married a girl from Mexico. My nephews wear and nieces wear Mexico jerseys all the time. So now we're familia, right? So you can change. You can change. Um, and when we do better, we do better. Well, Tony, I've been thinking about you a lot uh, in all of Minneapolis, St. Paul, and just want to thank you for coming on the show and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for, you know, a career supporting the sport, the people, and having empathy and for your viewpoints and giving me a chance to, to tell our story and, and supporting people across the country and for standing up and you know, being on the good side. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Tony Sane as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm-hmm.